What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with fellow Bostonian, or at least he's there now, Ken Getz. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And we've been trying to chase this down for a while, so I'm glad we were able to make it work. Uh, You've been busy. You just put a book out last week, which we'll speak about, and congratulations on that. And then by way of background, I have you as the Deputy Director and Research Professor at Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, and then founder and chairman of an organization called CISCRP, or C-I-S-C-R-P. And then, you know, we'll talk about the book in a minute. So if you don't mind, why don't we jump right in, and uh, not to make your head too, too big, but based on the research that I've done, you clearly are a big deal when it comes to all things R&D and clinical trial management when it, you know, regarding practices and trends. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how did you start to head down this path? It's a fairly, it's a very important one in, in the pharma biotech world, but uh, I'm not sure it's one that, you know, a ton of people choose to head down, especially as meaningfully as you have. Thank you, Aaron. It's, um, I have to say, I've had fun every step of the way, and it's, it's really felt like a privilege to, to have this kind of career trajectory. Um, I've, I've generally been an observer and an educator and kind of a, a navigator throughout the whole drug development enterprise, but, and from different vantage points. In college, I had a real passion for the intersection of science and how to manage science more effectively. And from there, I went into management consulting, and I was working with a lot of uh, major pharmaceutical companies, helping them develop new treatments for a disease. Um, And from there, I launched a publishing company that focused on providing uh, medical information to research professionals. And I very quickly learned through publishing that information that some of our most impassioned readers were actually patients and their families who somehow tracked me down and wanted access to this information to help them navigate uh, clinical research, the the process and help them identify a potential therapy that could help them. And it just drew me even farther into providing uh, advocacy services and educational services that really help the public and patients navigate this process. And every step of the way, I've been able to wear different hats and to really help a variety of professionals and patients and the public. And as I said, it's it's been a real privilege. Well, it's nice because you are clearly doing good. And I mean that in the sense of, uh, you know, a public service to the country and the world. So thank you for, for, you know, being so dedicated. A lot of the listeners on this show are healthcare professionals or digital health experts. So I'm guessing a lot of them may know this already, but just because it's critical to the conversations we're having Can we take a step back and and spend 30 seconds on talking about what a clinical trial is and what the purpose is? Absolutely. I think that would be really helpful for people. Um, So in very, very simple terms, it's essentially a scientific study of uh, people and how they respond to a new or experimental or what we call an investigational medical therapy. 
These are studies that are at this time really conducted in a controlled environment, a research center with trained uh, clinical research professionals. And every trial has very strict eligibility requirements. Uh, you really have to qualify for the study. As I mentioned, it's a scientific experiment. The early phase studies are conducted among a small number of volunteers, typically healthy people, to just understand how a drug is metabolized in the body and to get a basic feeling for whether the drug is safe. Later trials are conducted among much larger numbers of people, typically patients who are managing a specific illness. And these studies look not only at increasing our understanding of the safety of a therapy, but they also look at how effective that therapy might be. And ultimately, trials will begin to even look at the economic benefit of a treatment. Is it a better treatment or offer a better economic alternative to other therapies that may already be used or interventions that may already be used? Well, so that, that, that's essentially a trial in a nutshell. No, that's a great explanation. Thank you for doing that. And then just to put the cherry on it, usually this is what's required for FDA or federal drug approval the FDA you know, association. So drug companies, biotech companies have to go through this process to get there. One of the things I'd love to ask about is, you know, you've spent 20 plus years in this space doing original research, benchmarking, um, R&D management practices, global outsourcing in, in the investigative landscape. Maybe talk about some changes you've seen over the last 20 years. I'm imagining it's, it's been pretty dramatic. It's been really dramatic. And there are so many things I could point to Three in particular that we focus on a lot now at uh, the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. The first would really be the exponential increase that we've seen in the volume of patient data that's collected to support uh, every clinical trial. And this is incredibly diverse data as well. The traditional clinical trial data comes from a what we call a case report form, a specific data collection sheet for the study itself. But now data is being collected from smartphones and wearable devices like a Fitbit, from specialty medical devices, heart assessment monitors and specialty labs, electronic health information, patient reported information, and even medical claims data. So there's just a phenomenal amount of data available, some that the patient has to enter themselves, some of it that's just gathered from a variety of different sources. The second area is really what I would describe as um, growing attention on participation convenience, trying to ease the burden of participation for patients and to really help them manage the demands and the requirements of a clinical trial more easily. So it might involve the use of a, an actual navigator at a health system or a research center. There are all kinds of concierge services, transportation support and assistance for patients and their families, um, home nurses who go and visit uh, patients uh, so that they can participate in the comfort of their own home. And there's a lot of talk about virtual clinical trials where you could participate in a, in a trial using your smartphone at any time, anywhere. And then the last area would be what I would describe as uh, patient engagement and maybe even more broadly, healthcare provider 
engagement. A lot of people who are participating today in clinical research don't understand that research and clinical care are totally separate domains, that they don't really interact very often. And there's a real push to try to engage the practicing or treating physician and nurse along with the patient in, and their family as partners in the research process where they have input into what specific outcomes will be measured in the trial, what really matters to a patient, uh, and also relates to data transparency and uh, soliciting feedback from these parties frequently throughout the conduct of a clinical trial. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I feel smarter just having listened to that, and I feel like I know a fair amount about clinical trials. And it's interesting, I was just at the uh, health conference a couple months ago, HLTH, in Las Vegas, and I heard a lot about the importance of that first point, the real-world evidence, you know, data collected from a variety of devices and other non-traditional sources. So glad to, to see that you're seeing that as part of a trend. You know, one of the things that I, I guess was a little concerning, and I read this in an interview you did with Cytel last year, and you mentioned that even after we double the enrollment period, so this is trying to maximize the number of patients you get through and, you know, really get the, the maximum uh, impact, 40% of the sites in a multi-center study will under-enroll, and in some cases, they might only enroll a single patient. How do we fix this glaring issue? It, it's a huge issue, and uh, what's interesting, Aaron, is we've seen this condition for well over two decades. It hasn't changed. We believe that one of the largest issues relates to protocol complexity, that uh, we have such strict eligibility criteria. We have so many procedures that are performed uh, at each patient visit. In fact, more procedures today are performed than ever before in a clinical trial. So a lot of this has to do with reducing the burden that we place on both the study volunteers, patients who are in our trials, but also the research professionals who have to conduct these trials. And they have so much of a burden that they face uh, to support the protocol, to comply with regulatory requirements. Um, and we believe that the way to address this uh, has many different areas that we can focus on. We can try to simplify protocol designs and perhaps even push more of the trial into those virtual settings or take some of the burden off the research center staff by allowing study volunteers to more conveniently participate wherever and whenever works best for them to we believe that site selection uh, is a huge issue as well, that as an industry, the pharmaceutical companies uh, don't always have the luxury of time to select the best investigative sites with the most trained, the best trained and most experienced people. And we believe that given the volume of data that companies are collecting, that more of that data could be used intelligently to predict performance and to anticipate when a trial is not meeting the performance requirements and trying to intervene in real time so that we can avoid the kind of outcome that you described, which is very, very costly. And interestingly, it's not only the sites who fail to enroll, it's that group of sites at 40% that are activated, right, but under-enroll, because since they're activated, we have to 
put forth so many resources to collect their data, to clean their data, to deliver clinical supplies. So it's a, it's a huge and costly issue that needs to be addressed. Well, I think the good news is this certainly won't hurt, and that is the fact that you have a new book that just came out last week, which we alluded to. Um, it's titled The Gift of Participation, A Guide to Making Informed Decisions About Volunteering for a Clinical Trial. Talk a little bit more about the book and the target audience, and obviously this book getting out there, I'm, I'm tipping our hand a little bit, I think will probably help expose more people to the power of what clinical trials do and how important it is for people to participate, particularly you know, around things like uh, rare diseases, right, where there's smaller populations. So tell us a little bit about the book, and I think it's uh, off to a good start, you said. Yes, and thank you so much for mentioning it. Uh, we're so excited about coming out with a third edition of this book. It's, it's a book written for the public and patients, and so much of it is actually uh, framed and determined by feedback that we get from the public and patients over uh, usually two to three years in between each edition. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, when I was publishing a lot of technical research information and medical information, I would get calls from patients and their families. And way back then, it really became quite clear that there are so many rudimentary but important pieces of information that families and patients and the public need to know to be smarter about uh, determining whether a clinical trial makes sense and whether they should participate in a trial. What are some of the key issues that they need to understand about the process and how can they be more informed? So um, with this third edition, uh, we're really getting at a lot of new issues that are, are really important. Um, each edition that comes out will ultimately circulate several hundred thousand copies, which has really been just wonderful to see. A lot of it uh, comes from medical centers and research centers that want to have copies on hand for their own specific patients, but we have copies in libraries uh, around the country, public libraries and even medical libraries. It's really an educational resource. It helps the public and patients really navigate this process themselves or on behalf of a loved one. Um, this latest edition has really updated all of the, the context about trends and some of the conditions, some of the key statistics that you need to know about clinical trials. And it also has a ton of reference information and links. It has a whole chapter now on the collection and use of genetic data and what you need to know to protect your privacy and about the personalized medicine, really targeted therapies for very, very specific uh, patient uh, subpopulations. It talks about new clinical trial models like these virtual and remote trials. And if you're a patient in a study like that, how do you need to really protect yourself and ensure that uh, you're on, staying on top of that trial and providing feedback? how to, um, there, there's a new chapter on the whole patient engagement movement and what you need to know as a, as a patient or family member. And one interesting new area that we've just added is how to get involved in accessing an experimental therapy when you don't qualify to participate in a clinical trial. There are what are known as expanded access programs and the right to try movement where 
you can petition pharmaceutical companies to gain access to a therapy through your physician, whether you're in the trial or not. And so th there are, those are some of the examples of new areas that have expanded this third edition of the gift of participation. So a very tactical but important question about, you know, getting this into people's hands. I'm assuming people can just go to Amazon and order it, but do you have a specific uh, place that you'd prefer to send people to? And we can add this into the, the show notes on the blog that we post along with this uh, interview when it goes up. I really appreciate that. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, we're, we, it will be increasingly present in a lot of the online stores. But if people even just go to the Syscrip website, they'll find the book in our store. It's at siscrp.org. But more importantly, perhaps, as people go to the Syscrip website, they'll see a lot of different services that we offer that might help them. For example, with this third edition, uh, we're really getting at a lot of new issues that are, are really important. Um, each edition that comes out will ultimately circulate several hundred thousand copies, which has really been just wonderful to see. A lot of it uh, comes from medical centers and research centers that want to have copies on hand for their own specific patients, but we have copies in libraries uh, around the country. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that. And I strongly encourage everyone that's listening in to pick up a copy. And I guess this is uh, kind of the big picture question as someone that has spent as much time you know, in the service of public health and, and really helping companies um, move solutions forward to, to make the world healthier. I like to ask guests sometimes the question of, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about healthcare today, what would it be? And, you know, I imagine every person you speak with has a different take on it. That is... That is such a hard question to answer because, as you know, there isn't one thing, right? Um, and, and I know many of my colleagues point to access and affordability as some of the most um, vexing and challenging areas. I, I, I'll answer this really from the perspective of a professor at an academic institution that really focuses on the drug development enterprise and gathering economic data and trend data. And one of the areas that we look at is really the, the critical need for, the more sh for more sharing, for better aggregation and integration of patient data and information and better compatibility of the systems that collect and archive and make and enable the sharing of this information. There's so much redundant and competing and incompatible systems that are in place. It's an incredibly disaggregated and fragmented environment. You could look at electronic health records, for example. Every time a patient sees a different health specialist, like uh, they go to a lab that collects their blood, they go to a specialty area to have a specific procedure performed that's not part of their typical health system, there's a new record that's created and these are not connected. So a lot of every patient's own data, a lot of their own data is spread across numerous distinct records stored on different platforms, they're not centralized, it's not accessible, and of course it makes it so hard 
to accurately diagnose and treat a disease or detect a pattern in uh, an individual patient's response to a treatment or to a pattern in terms of the population's response to a treatment. So it's that, uh, I would say that's really such a critical area, the fragmentation and the disaggregation of data and systems that would, in a cloud-based environment, if it were integrated properly, could, could really open up the, this environment to innovation and collaboration that would really benefit patients and their families tremendously. Yeah, that's a, a problem that I have heard uh, somewhat regularly, not necessarily in response to this question, but uh, Amy Abernathy, who's the principal deputy commissioner of the FDA. Right. She has spent some time talking at a few events I've been at recently, you know, that they're working very hard on the compatibility and, you know, this whole smoothing over of because there is so much data out there and there's so much information and it just doesn't connect and there's so many missed opportunities, obviously, that are both for good and can obviously create problems with with patients. So um, I like your answer. Thank you for sharing that. This is where I'd like to um, shift a little bit and we'll talk a little bit more about you and you personally. And I like to ask all of my guests some variation of these questions. But um, tell us something about yourself that people don't know that you're willing to share. Oh, my. Um, uh, the, the biggest personal obsessions I have right now is that I'm an avid hiker. I love the outdoors. Uh, it's, uh, it's really like an addiction for me. And I'm very active in the New England area. We spend a lot of time, my wife and I, hiking in Acadia National Park and uh, the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So if, if I'm not at my desk, there's a very good chance that I'm out hiking. And of course, my, my dog, uh, Kibo, is, is uh, with us as well. She's a poster dog for L.L. Bean, and she's, uh, she loves hiking with us as well. Well, you certainly live in the, the right place to do that. And I've, I've <laughs> enough to visit some of those places like Acadia and the White and Green Mountains and uh, just so many great opportunities to hike. The second question I'd like to ask, and, and this is always fun asking someone that's a book author themselves, but any books that you've read recently or over the last you know, couple of years that spoke to you that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I'm, I'm really uh, an avid reader, and mo in particular, I love a really good history book, particularly revolutionary history, and one of my favorite authors is Joseph Ellis. Um, so one book I, I wanted to recommend, uh, and I recommend this to a lot of friends, is his book called The Quartet. It, it, this book explores how four of our nation's leaders, some of them founding fathers, shortly after our nation achieved its independence from Britain, and after conveying to the American people that a central government was less desirable, suddenly we had to convince the American public that we now had to establish a new central government and had to charge uh, and, uh, taxes in order to fund that government. And so this is just a fascinating book about how our nation's leaders were able to finesse that incredibly difficult task and how they pulled it off. So I, I recommend that. And it, there's great insight into how to think about um, changing the positioning and the way people think about such fundamental and impassioned uh, concepts that motivate them. Well, it's probably a timely one given the fact that 
I know it's cliche, <laughs> history, you know, does uh, repeat itself as much as people don't want to think that's true. And given the Sisyphean task we have right now of unifying and, and getting to a place of uh, bipartisanship, it, it seems like it's harder now than ever. And so it's good to know that we're not the only ones that have ever experienced difficulties like this vis-a-vis the government. <laughs> I agree. So last question, which should be a little easier and not quite as heady as uh, all the other topics we cover, but I do love to find out, um, you know, it's the deserted island question, you're stuck and you can only bring one album with you, which album would you pick and why? And I love that. Um, In fact, I would say, Aaron, just the flip side of that, I find often looking at someone's music collection is, is like a window into their soul and into uh, who they are as people. So I think it's such a great question. And it's a really hard one for me because I love so many different kinds of music. But a, a couple things about me, I'm a, a really uh, avid Beatles fan. In fact, I wrote a book about the Beatles. We don't have to mention it anything further here, but if you're on the Amazon website, you can find it. My favorite uh, Beatles album is Rubber Soul because it really marked a major shift in their style of music and is often cited as one of the greatest influences in advancing pop music. And so that's probably the album that I would bring with me on a deserted island. Well, I love that for a variety of reasons. And I may have to check out your book on the Beatles because I'm a Beatles nerd myself. And it is interesting. I think I've done probably about 120 or so of these interviews And I've asked most of my guests that question. And the Beatles probably are the band that comes up the most. I have it as one of my two or three top answers, usually White Album for me for um, different reasons. And I was just thinking Katie Couric, who I had the pleasure of interviewing back in the summer, she picked Abbey Road, if I'm not mistaken, as hers. And so you're in good company in that regard. And I love the thinking on that and the fact that it was such an influential album. Great. I, it's my hope, Aaron, that we could all be deserted on the same island so we could listen to all those albums together. I think that would work because I selfishly, I have a hard time picking one Beatles album because I really do like them in aggregate and I try to steer guests away from doing greatest hits. So I appreciate the fact that you did pick one. Uh, but that, that sounds like a good solution is, you know, you, me, Katie, and a few others will get together and we'll hang out and have our Mai Tais on that deserted island. <laughs> sounds great. Well, this has been a pleasure. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What's Know podcast show, speaking with Ken Getz. Ken, as I mentioned, was the deputy director, research professor at the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, and also the founder and chairman of Cisgrip, book author, and genuinely nice guy. It's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you, Ken. Thank you so much, Aaron. Likewise, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, if you can't find that Beatles book, shoot me a note. I will send you a copy. Will do. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.